In uh, chapter uh, 7 of his gospel, Luke records a significant parable that Jesus tells. The setting of the parable is a dinner party. It is at the home of one Simon the Pharisee, Luke tells us. And while at the dinner in the open courtyard of this beautiful, rather expensive home, in came a woman whom Luke says was a sinner. Everybody knew who she was. She had a reputation in the community. People did their best to steer away from her, wanted nothing to do with her disreputable in every way. Well, in she came to this dinner party. You may wonder, how did she uninvited come into this dinner party in this house? Well, it's in an open courtyard, and the courtyard had a passageway to the street. So walking by, you could walk in. You didn't usually do that, but she knew that Jesus was there, and so she came in uninvited into that open courtyard. And she found where Jesus was at the table, and she was weeping before she ever got to where he was. And she knelt down, and you remember the story, she wet Jesus' feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, she kissed his feet, she anointed his feet with oil, Luke says. And all of that in contrast to the reception Jesus had received when he showed up at the house for the dinner party. Simon the Pharisee was extremely wealthy, well-known, but when Jesus came, did nothing. Not even the common Middle Eastern courtesies were offered to Jesus. Uh, there was no water provided for his feet coming in off the street. Uh, there was no uh, kiss of greeting as was customary. There was no anointing of his head with perfumed oil, which is what you would do for an honored guest. None of that was offered. How different the response of the woman. Well, Simon is extremely upset by the presence of this disgusting woman in the courtyard of his house. And he's even more appalled by the actions that this woman took during the course of the dinner. And he thinks to himself, this Jesus, some people say, is a great prophet. Some sort of prophet he is. He doesn't even know what kind of a vile woman just approached him? Because if he were a true prophet of God, he would know who she was and he would have nothing to do with her, would not even let her get near him. Luke says Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. And so he says to Simon, Simon, I have a story I'd like to tell you. And so Simon says, tell your story. It's a very simple one. There was a certain money lender, Jesus said, a banker, uh, who made a loan to two different people. One loan was small, one was large. The larger loan was 10 times greater than the smaller one. And so both had a loan from this individual, and as circumstances would have it, Jesus said, neither one was able to repay the loan. But the banker, rather than taking legal action, Rather than taking them to court, rather than suing them, rather than seizing their property, rather than garnishing their wages or whatever he might have decided to do, he, out of grace and mercy and overflowing kindness, undeserved, unexpected kindness, fully, freely, 
joyfully canceled both debts, the small one and the large one, in their entirety. That was the story. And Jesus then turned to Simon, and of course everybody else at the dinner party is listening. And Jesus says, to quote Luke's gospel, now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, I suppose, the answer is obvious, isn't it? The one who had the larger debt canceled. And Jesus responded, you have judged rightly. He said, when I came into your house, you offered me nothing. This woman, since she came in, has not stopped honoring me and praising me for the forgiveness she has received. And the bottom line of the story, Jesus says to Simon and to all the guests, is the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven little loves little. And the point was not missed by anybody there at that dinner party. Here is Simon. He is righteous. He's a Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like other people. That was his attitude. Now, he wouldn't say he was sinless. He wouldn't say he was perfect. Of course, nobody's perfect. You know, only God is. But I'm nowhere as sinful as that woman is. I mean, she's in a whole different class beyond me. So he thought. And so he has no, what Jesus is trying to get to him is you don't realize your own sinfulness. You think she's down here and you're up here. You're both debtors. You're in a bigger debt than you know. But the woman recognizes her great debt of sin. You don't have a clue, Jesus says. And so because she is forgiven, what is her response? There is a beautiful, amazing, tangible outpouring of thankfulness and love. Because of what Jesus has done for me, this is my voluntary, joyous heart response. And because Simon the Pharisee had no real sense of his sin, no real sense of forgiveness, there was no generosity on his part. There was no joyful spirit of giving. So how does that story in Luke 7 relate to what Paul has been talking about? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, he spends two chapters talking about offerings in church and about finances and about stewardship. So how does that story out of Luke's gospel relate to what is actually the final paragraph of what Paul has to say with regard to giving, uh, verses um, 6 through 15 of, of chapter 9? It's simply in this way, what, what, what Paul points out at the very end of his presentation of giving and stewardship and offerings and all of that, his point is, if one has truly experienced the forgiveness of sins, if one has been revolutionized from the inside out, if one is indeed a new creation through Christ Jesus, if one has received that gift of abundant life here and in eternity, that gift of eternal life, if old things are passed away, all things are become new, if I've got a reservation in heaven with my name on the door, if all of that is true, that person in response to that, not because I have to or I should, but that person can't help himself or herself, in response to love so amazing, so divine, in gratitude for God's amazing grace, that person will freely and willingly and joyfully give of his or her resources, finances. And in addition to that, of course, time and talents. 
Because when you've experienced it for yourself, you want to be a vessel filled to overflowing so that grace overflows into other people's lives. You want to be a conduit that God can use so that his grace can flow through you in tangible ways to make a difference in the lives of others around. Now, if that's true, let me just mention this briefly in passing. If that's true, on the flip side, if you are not generous with your money, if you're not generous with your time and your talents, then you would do well to examine whether or not you are even a Christian. That's the teaching of Scripture. Now, as Paul draws this discussion of giving and offerings to a close, Paul ends the last paragraph of chapter 9, gives us various reasons, um, incentives, encouragements for each one of us to be a regular joyful, generous giver. What are those incentives? What are those encouragements? What are those reasons? There are several of them. This morning, I want to look at just one of them. And so I'm not going to read the entire text. I'm going to read just verse 6, where Paul makes the point that generous giving always produces a generous return. And he uses the example of a farmer to make his point. Hence my title, Think Like a Farmer. Here's verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully, generously, abundantly, depending on your translation, will also reap bountifully. When it comes to giving, many people, if they give at all, give, as Paul would say, sparingly. What does it mean to give sparingly? Well, think about how we use the verb to spare in English. If somebody is in dire circumstances and pleads, spare my life, what that person is saying, I don't want to let go of it. I want to keep it. I want to retain it. Spare my life. I want to hang on to it. Uh, on the other side, if somebody's on a sports team, let's say you're playing for the state Class B football championship, and uh, you're in the locker room before the game starts, and the coach says to the players on the team, all right, boys, he said, when you're on the field, spare no effort. That means hold nothing back. Give everything you have. Leave everything on the field. Spare no effort. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 32, writes that God did not spare his own son. God didn't hold him back. I'm not giving him. God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him as the Savior of the world. So, what does it mean to give sparingly? It means that whatever amount, maybe, you end up giving, deep inside, you really don't want to give it. You give just enough so maybe you can feel a little better, you don't feel so guilty about it, whatever it is, but you'd rather hold on to it for yourself. That's the point, giving sparingly. Your passion is not to see how much you can give and how you can invest maybe in greater ways, but how much you can hold back and keep for yourself. And Paul uses the example of the farmer. He says no farmer has ever thought that way. No farmer ever has a collection of seed and says, you know what, you can't be too careful with this seed here. You know, I, I want to retain it, so I'm going to go out and plant, and I'm going to carefully, I'll put one seed here, 
And let's see. Put another one over here and put another one over here. Because I don't want to give too much of the seed. I want to hang on to it. Because, you know, if, if I sow too much, I'm not going to have much left. I mean, no sane farmer in the history of the world has ever thought like that. No farmer has ever viewed sowing of seed as a loss. Uh, you think about in Bible times, you know, when, when a farmer would sow, he'd have a bag over his shoulder, and he would reach into his bag, and with a sweep of his arm, he would just cast the seed, walk, cast the seed as he went. And, and nobody ever rushed up to one of those farmers and said, wait, wait, what are you doing? You're throwing away perfectly good seed. What do you think you're doing? You're wasting it all. But Paul says that's the way some people look at giving. You're throwing away the seed. You're wasting it. Why are you throwing away perfectly good money on church stuff? Why are you throwing away good money on some ministry project? Or on some mission endeavor? You're just like throwing your money away, casting your dollars to the wind. Talk about a bad investment. It's not even an investment. You're just throwing it away. You'll never see it again. Well, this being a passage about farming, uh, I decided I better contact an expert this week. Couldn't find one, so I talked to my son-in-law, Ben. I, I was debating whether I was going to say that or not. Um, no, so, so I thought, okay, so th this business of sowing and reaping, so I had a couple simple questions for him. So how does this work in real farming experience? And Ben gave me some numbers, and he verified them with his agronomist, so they're doubly sure. So if a farmer is planting spring wheat, and uh, just, I asked Ben, I said, how many seeds do you plant per acre if you plant spring wheat? Here's the answer, 1,620,480 seeds. Boy, that's a lot of seeds wasted. It's a lot of seed thrown away. Boy, wouldn't it be better you hung on to the 1.6 million? But then I said, when harvest time comes, what do you reap? 48,614,400, that precise. So you plant 1.62 million and you get 48.6 million back. Is that a bad investment? I asked him about soybeans. So I said, if you plant soybeans, how many do you put in per acre? 160,000 soybeans. Boy, what you could do with all those soybeans if you hung on to them. Well, what do you get come harvest time out of one acre? You plant 160,000, you come back with 8,437,000 soybeans. And then one more. This was kind of a stunning one to me. Canola. Uh, where Ben reminded me that the seed is smaller than a mustard seed. Jesus said, you know, the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, he didn't know about canola. So canola is even smaller than a mustard seed. So I said, how many seeds of canola do you plant per acre? 336,000 canola seeds. And what's the return on one acre? 168 million. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul says you have to think like a farmer when it comes to giving. Paul uses the same analogy of sowing and reaping in Galatians chapter 6. I want you to notice these verses uh, 6 through 10. 
And Paul expands uh, the analogy a little further than he does in 2 Corinthians. But here's what he writes. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, when you put these two passages together, you put what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and here in Galatians, we discover this is a quotation from uh, John Stott, great 20th century Bible scholar. He says, this whole idea of sowing and reaping, these are his words, is a principle of order and consistency which is written into all of life, material and moral. It is part of reality on every level. And so this principle of sowing and reaping, on the most basic level, it's true literally in the field of agriculture. Whether you're a farmer here or not, you all know that that's true. And so what you plant, you reap. So if you want to reap wheat come harvest time, you don't plant carrot seeds in the spring and then be surprised you don't have wheat come fall. Whatever seed you put in the ground is what you're going to get in harvest, Paul says in Galatians 6. And all things being equal, if you sow good quality seed, any farmer knows this, it will produce a quality crop. And again, all things being equal, if you sow bad quality seed, it will produce a poor crop. And if you sow little, you'll reap little. And so the principle is true on the literal level, on the level of agriculture, all of us understand that. The same principle, Paul says, is true in the moral life. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 6. So if you sow to the flesh, you will from that field reap corruption. The seed is bad and the harvest is worse, Paul says. But if you sow to the Spirit, if you yield your life to the Holy Spirit, to His direction through His Holy Word, then you will from the Spirit reap life, abundant life, eternal life, overflowing life. This matter of sowing and reaping is true in the moral realm. And both in Galatians 6 and in 2 Corinthians 9, it's true when it comes to giving. Financially supporting those who proclaim the gospel, supporting uh, pastors, missionaries, supporting the ministries of your local congregation, using your resources to uh, care for those in need. What does Paul say? Doing good to everybody, especially to those of the household of faith. And if you sow generously, there is a tremendous return on your investment. You will bless others in ways that you will not even understand. You will glorify God. You will advance the work of the kingdom. Your inner life will be enriched. Your vision for the world around will be expanded. Whatever you sow, you will reap in some amazing, abounding ways. And sometimes God in his providence, I believe always when you sow, if you give faithfully, he'll give you more to give. If you bury what you have in the ground, he's not giving you more. So if you give faithfully, and this isn't health and wealth, but God will supply more funds so you might give more.
John Piper, many years a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist, puts it this way. I thought his statement was rather striking. He said, in God's mathematics, the best way to increase a sum is to subtract from it. And you hear me read that, and you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. No, the way that it works is if I give a little, I'll hang on to more. And even better, if I don't give anything, I'll hang on to everything. I mean, if I have $10 and I subtract one, I now only have nine. And if I hang on to my $10, guess what? I'll still have $10. That's not how it works in God's economy. When you include God and his promises at the center of your life, at the center of your finances, 10 minus 1 will end up being more than 10 in a number of ways when all is said and done. Let me just, as I draw these thoughts to a close, just uh, draw your attention to just several passages of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament and in the New. This one from Proverbs 11 is very striking. Here's what Solomon writes. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. There's the paradox, isn't it? One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You couldn't be clearer than that. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. Those are the words of Solomon. Here's another one from Solomon, Proverbs 19 and verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. There'll be an abundant return. Not like the health and wealth. Send in your seed money. You hear these deceivers on TV. This isn't what Solomon is talking about or Paul is talking about. But there is a return. There is a blessing. There is an expansion of the kingdom. There is a ripple effect of what you give that goes way beyond what the gift was. And of course, in the life to come, there is abundant reward. Matthew chapter 25, this is the passage on the sheep and the goats. And you notice what Jesus says, there's the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. Jesus will say to the sheep on the right, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Talk about a blessing. And then notice the next word, because, for, what? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will then say, when did we ever do that? And you notice verse 40, what the king will say to them. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. We have at our church, we collect for it on Communion Sundays, our cup of cold water fund. Comes out of this verse in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones, the least of these, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, notice that qualifier, Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you look at it that way when you literally give to that fund on a communion Sunday? That there is blessing to you when you give because you're Christ's disciple and you want to minister to others? That's what Jesus says. And look at one more. This is Malachi chapter 3. 
Malachi says, will man rob God? Oh, no, 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 never do that. But yet, what does the scripture say? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? Answer, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, is the way the ESV puts it. Until you're not able to contain it, I think the King James puts it uh, in those kinds of words. So Paul says to the Corinthians, Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs, Jesus says to his disciples, past and present, Malachi says to the people of his day, you will have more if you give more. By subtracting, you will add. And so the challenge that Malachi gives us is scatter more seed and see what happens. And again, I'm not talking in health and wealth gospel terms, which is no gospel at all. But there will be return, there will be blessing, people will come to know the Lord, talk about rich reward for an investment. All kinds of ways in which you will be richly blessed. And what does Malachi say? Put God to the test and see if this isn't true or not. Put God to the test and find out through personal experience that his promises are true. Paul says when it comes to giving, all of us are farmers, spiritually speaking. Which means then if we are all farmers, we are then to sow in the season for sowing. And then we have the joy of reaping a harvest. Some we will see, some we will not see. All of it we will understand and see in glory. But there is a marvelous harvest that comes. And I'm sure there are many of you who have found that when you've given to somebody, somebody in need, the, the blessing that has just come, just the joy that has come into your own life and the Holy Spirit has said, well done, good and faithful servant. When you sow, there is a marvelous, joyous return. And so as our text makes clear, there are two and only two kinds of sowers. One who sows generously and the one who sows sparingly. When it comes to your finances, your time, your talents, the question is, which of the two kinds of sowers are you? Let's pray. Lord, uh, you've entrusted us with much. And in light of what you have done for us from A to Z in our lives, planning our lives before they ever started, writing all of our days in your book before we lived the first one of them, um, our name written in heaven before the foundation of the world, a place reserved for us in your kingdom, Opportunities in this life, blessings great and small. And so what is our response to all of that? Do we hang on to what we have? Do we give grudgingly if we give at all? Do we give sparingly? Or do we think like the farmer and say, Lord, this is what you've entrusted to me. I'm going to scatter the seed and trust you for an amazing result. So Lord, give us that kind of faith in all things in life, even just 
helping a neighbor with loaning some tools, giving a cup of cold water, so to speak. So many ways in which we can be used by you and we can bring blessing into the lives of others. So, Lord, uh, stir us up in our own hearts and lives that all that we do is in response to grace. All that we do is in response to your mercies. Then there is joy. Then there is a sense of fulfillment. And you always do supply what we need so that we might bless others through our giving. Thank you for all of that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.